Gresham College presents Is reality limited to what science can uncover? C.S. Lewis's Critique of Naturalism by Professor Alistair McGrath. Um, in this series of lectures, what we're doing is we're opening up what I hope you will feel are some interesting questions. They may have scientific dimensions, they may have religious dimensions, but I hope you'll feel they're interesting. And what I'm trying to do with each of these big questions like this one, is reality limited to what science can uncover, is to dialogue a bit with somebody who I hope you'll think is interesting. Today it's C.S. Lewis, next, week it's, next month it's J.R. Tolkien, and then uh, in the summer we'll be looking at Richard Dawkins and then Philip Pullman. So we hopefully have a variety of viewpoints on these interesting questions represented. And basically the question we're looking at this, this afternoon is this. Is reality limited to what science can disclose? Or is there something beyond the scientific method? It's a very difficult question in many ways, but it's also, I think, a very interesting question. And later in this lecture, I will be talking about C.S. Lewis, but actually in one of his books, he uses an image to try and explore this point. And he asks us to think of water lilies. So there are some water lilies. And uh, Lewis's point is this. If you look at a pond with these lovely lilies growing on them from the surface, then that basically is what you see. And I'm not complaining about that. I think it's rather nice. But Lewis's point is this. What you don't see is what's beneath the surface. The system of stems, the roots that anchor these plants to the bottom of the pond. And Lewis's point is that maybe it's helpful to think of this as a metaphor for our grasp of reality. We see some stuff on the surface, and that's good and helpful and useful, but maybe there's something we don't see, something that's beneath the surface, and maybe what's beneath the surface helps us to understand what we do see on the surface. So I think there's a very interesting cultural debate going on at the moment, um, basically about which discipline offers us the most reliable source of knowledge for ourselves and for the world. And traditionally, people have said, well, philosophy helps with that. Maybe theology helps with that. But more recently, science is very often proposed as the discipline which supremely has the competence to answer the big questions about our universe and, indeed, the meaning of our life. And some of you may have read Stephen Hawking's recent book, The Grand Design, in which he declares that philosophy is dead, leaving the field clear for scientists who will become, I quote from him, the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. And that's a very interesting and very influential view, and it's one I'll be exploring with you a bit in this lecture. And, of course, there are others who would agree with Hawking. Um, some of you will have read this book by Alex Rosenberg, The Atheist Guide to Reality, published in 2011. And in this book, um, Rosenberg basically takes the view, and I quote from him at this point, that science provides all the significant truths about reality, and knowing such truths is what real understanding is all about. And so we have here this idea that science is the solely reliable, the solely competent research tool we have at our disposal to try and make sense of ourselves and the world around us. And in this book, Rosenberg tends to dismiss a number of philosophical questions, um, basically because they, they don't really match up very well with science. He writes, science is our exclusive guide to reality. So we might begin to kick that around a bit and ask how reliable that judgment is. I would certainly say that science is one of our guides to reality, and one I value enormously. But my own view would be that you want to bring other things into the picture as well. But let's stick with Rosenberg for a few moments. What happens if we apply this idea, I quote, that science is our exclusive guide to reality, to a series of traditional questions? Happily, Rosenberg answers these questions himself. So here are um, some of the answers that he gives. Here are the basic ideas he's developing. Um, and uh, there's that quote I just gave you. So let's look at some of the questions. Is there a God? Well, no, because science does not disclose that there is one. What is the nature of reality? That's a big question. What physics says it is? Well, we'll come back to that. It's a very interesting point. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. 
What is the meaning of life? Ditto. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Now, I think possibly with that last one, one or two of you in the audience will say this, this doesn't seem to be heading in a very good direction. We need to just ask how reliable this approach is. But I think it's a very good example of a consistent application of this principle. And it seems to me that there's some very interesting questions we can explore. Let's stick with that last point. I think in many ways it's very helpful in just opening up the question that we were looking at. I mean, my argument would be that it's very hard to sustain that judgment if you look back at the history of the 20th century. Um, I mean, here's a very good quote from the historian R.G. Collingwood, which many of you will know. Collingwood wrote, the chief business of 20th century philosophy is to reckon with 20th century history. And the point he was making is, as he looked at the Second World War, and above all, the Holocaust, he said that that is raising such fundamental questions about human nature, goodness, and evil, that actually it sets the agenda for an awful lot of philosophical reflection. And so when Rosenberg says, talking about right and wrong, good and bad, there is no moral difference between them, I think I I would struggle there. I think what I would very happily say is something like this. I, I think one could say perfectly defensibly, science is unable to affirm or identify any moral difference between good and evil. I think that that's, I mean, not everyone would agree with that, but a lot would. But you can see it's trying to make the point. It's not that there is no difference between good and evil. It's that science doesn't help us figure out what that difference is. In other words, science is not abolishing the ideas of good and evil. It's just saying, look, as scientists, we don't really do this kind of thing. That's for somebody else to engage. So there are, I think, some very interesting questions here. But what I've done really is simply use that question to open up this, this bigger discussion about the limits of science. And in this case, to think, for example, about what is right and what is wrong. And if there are limits to science, then what lies beyond science? And is there any way we can gain access to that? Now, here is a quote from Peter Medwer. Peter Medwer, some of you will have read his writings. He was very, very popular back in the 50s and early 60s. He won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in his work, for his work in immunology and frequently um, talked about the public understanding of science. He was kind of the Brian Cox of his day, if I can put it like that. And he took the view that there were limits to science. Here's a quote from him, which you've probably heard before, but it's an interesting quote. There are questions that science cannot answer and that no conceivable advance of science would empower it to answer. And what Medora is saying is, look, these are are not non-questions, they're not stupid questions, they're not delusional questions, they're real questions that matter to people. They hope to find answers to them, and science can't answer those without becoming something other than science. That is his main point. He is worried that science kind of morphs or transposes into something it's not, like moral philosophy. And Medawar wanted science to be science and stay that way. And Medawar basically just said, look, there are things like um, moral values and questions about the meaning of life, and, and science doesn't answer those. But that is no criticism of science at all. It's simply saying science is brilliant, but it works in a specific domain. And beyond that, it's not that it's incompetent. It just says that's not science. We don't go there. So there are some very interesting points. Albert Einstein, going back about 20 years before this, made a very similar point in a lecture he gave at Princeton in 1939. And again, Einstein... No, no doubts there about his scientific credentials. And as you might expect in that lecture, he talks about science in glowing terms. It is, it is wonderful. But he then emphasized that we need to just be a bit critical here. He writes, the scientific method can teach us nothing else beyond how facts are related to and conditioned by each other. I'll say it again, then explain it. 
The scientific method, he writes, can teach us nothing else beyond how facts are related to and conditioned by each other. In other words, you have all these observations, and science begins to disclose those patterns of connection between this observation, and then stands back and asks, well, what bigger picture might help us to make sense of that? And Einstein's point was that actually things like the meaning of life, moral values, tend to lie beyond this kind of analysis. Now, many of you will know that this rather ugly word, scientism, I'll say it again, scientism, is used to to refer to this approach which says, in effect, science is our exclusive guide to reality. And this view has been criticized mainly, I have to say, by philosophers. Um, And um, uh, Roger Scruton is a very good example. Roger Scruton is an immensely entertaining, very witty writer. And this is him expressing a real concern about, again, that word scientism. What he's saying really is that scientism reduces everything to scientific questions and so gives scientific answers, even if the questions originally asked aren't actually of that character. Look at this. Scientism involves use of scientific forms and categories in order to give the appearance of science to unscientific ways of thinking. The point he's making is that very often someone will smuggle in moral values and then, in effect, use science to justify them, even though science can't actually establish those moral values. It's a form of magic, a bid to reassemble the complex matter of human life at the magician's command in a shape over which you can exert control. Look at that last sentence. It's an attempt to subdue what it does not understand. In other words, it's trying to, in effect, reduce everything to science. Now, Scruton is always worth reading, and I think there are some important points being made there. But it seems to me there's an important debate here, which is going on around us, which I think goes, round, goes well beyond the well-known tensions that exist between the natural sciences and the humanities. Many of you remember that lecture by C.P. Snow at Cambridge on the two cultures. They just don't talk to each other. And Scruton here, I think, it, it illustrates rather nicely the tension between these ways of thinking. So again, my question is, does science answer all our questions or just some? And if it can't answer some of those questions, well, just where do we go? Now, some would say, well, look, if science cannot answer a question, then if an answer is given, it's an invented answer. Because science is, in effect, our exclusive or the most reliable guide to things. So if we give answers which are not scientifically warranted, then those, in effect, are inventions or delusions. So there's a very important point, I think, to look here. So I think we begin by trying to figure out how we think about the world around us. I'm going to go back to a much older scientist, and many of you will recognize this quote from Isaac Newton. It's not from any of his leading works like the Principia Mathematica or anything like that. It's actually actually a a reflection towards the end of his life when someone asked him, well, no, you're a very distinguished scientist. What do you want us to remember? What do you want us to, to gain from your writings? And this is the paragraph he gave. I seem, he wrote, to have been only like a small boy playing on the seashore, diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I think many of you will probably recognize that quote. It's very often used. It's quite powerful in many ways. And what uh, basically Newton is saying is, look, I've been scrabbling around on the beach of life. I've been scrabbling around on the beach of the universe, looking at what's on the beach. And yet beyond the beach, there are these great unplumbed, maybe unplumbable depths. And that's something which really needs to be engaged. So Newton here, I think, opening up this really interesting questions. So let's, let's begin to open this up by thinking about another scientist. Let's think about Galileo. There are many things that we associate with Galileo. One of them is not actually the invention of the telescope. I think that telescope actually has origins in Holland. But Galileo was one of the first to use a telescope to look at the night sky. 
And Galileo, as, as you will know, you know, turned his telescope to the night sky. He saw craters on the moon. He saw far more stars than you can see with the naked eye. And, of course, he saw famously the moons of the planet Jupiter. And, of course, what Galileo could see was vastly expanded by this piece of technology. But I think the important point to bring out here is this, that it wasn't as if the moons of Jupiter or the craters on the moon or all the new stars you could see suddenly came into existence simply because Galileo used this instrument. They were always there. The point is that Galileo now had a means of seeing them. In other words, what many regarded as the limits of things turned out simply to be the limits that arose from our natural human capacities which were capable of being extended. And when you extended them, you saw far more. You began to realize the universe was greater than the naked eye, the naked ear could disclose. So there I think we begin to see that actually we are beginning to to move towards thinking that there are things that are there that we can't see because of limitations placed on us as human beings. And the question is, can we overcome these limitations, for example, by using a telescope or, of course, a microscope? Or are there some areas in which those limitations are always going to be with us? So I think you can see there's a real issue there. Those of you who study philosophy will know that in the philosophy of science, there's a real debate about the problem of what is called the unobservable. And unobservable is something whose existence or nature or properties is not directly observable by human beings, but which we say we need to propose if we're going to make sense of what we do observe. Now, the classic example would, of course, be Newton himself, the idea of gravity. Newton, you know, famously... um, made a connection where really nobody had made this connection before between the way that planets orbit the sun and the way in which objects fell to earth, a very famous apple being a good example. And Newton, in effect, saw something which nobody else, as far as we can see, had basically imagined, and that is that something very similar was happening in both these cases. Matter was being attracted to matter, an apple to the earth, a planet to the sun, and that that explained what could be observed. And, of course, you will all know that Newton applied his famous laws of motion to the orbit of the moon around the earth and began to develop a whole series of mathematical models which actually predict things remarkably well. Uh, I mean, Newton every now and then got things wrong. For example, he, um, he, he used an inaccurate estimate of distance between the Earth and the Moon to make one calculation. But if you make a, a more accurate estimate of that, then Newton's equations work very well. But here is the point I want to make. How did Newton himself feel about this idea of gravity? Because remember... Newton was saying, I observe the way the planets go around the sun. I observe the way objects fall to the earth. And as a result of this, I hypothesize that there is something we cannot see and probably never will see called gravity, which makes sense of this. And Newton actually was profoundly uneasy about this idea because it seemed to him to, first of all, be very counterintuitive, but secondly, to be something that could not be confirmed by any human sense. So there's a very interesting point there that emerges from this. If we were to summarize Newton's line of thought in a sentence, I think it would go like this. We need to propose something that we cannot observe to explain what we do observe. And I'm sure many of you, as I've been talking, will will be making connections with other areas of thought as well. The one I think many of you will be thinking of is the very famous example of dark matter. Dark matter is not something that we observe. In fact, it's something we can't observe by definition. And the reason for believing that there is this stuff called dark matter is that there's a mismatch between the amount of material we can observe in the universe 
and the amount that seems to be there in the light of the gravitational force it generates. In other words, Newton's idea of gravity, when you begin to ask how much matter must there be in the universe to explain the gravitational forces we observe, you get a much higher answer than the amount of matter that can be observed to be in the universe. So you have to hypothesize there is dark matter, which really is there, but cannot be seen. Now, for some, that will raise awkward questions. I mean, you are proposing something that is undetectable, that cannot actually be empirically observed. But those who defend dark matter, and most do, would say that it makes perfect sense to propose something that can't be seen to explain what can be observed. And in many ways, it's a very good example of how scientific theories work. In effect, if this way of thinking is right, it makes sense of this and this and this, and without it, the whole thing would not hang together as a coherent big picture. And in many ways, Newton himself and others, in effect, were trying to develop the best big picture, which allowed us to provide a theoretical framework that made sense of what we actually observe in the world. So that, I think, is, is, is a very good illustration of the issue of you know, science opening up vistas in which we have to say there are things out there that we can't actually see, but we believe are there because the theory, the lens through which we look at things, is saying this is a way of explaining things. What about a religious way of looking at this? Well, of course, as you will all know, this is very characteristic of Christian theologians who would say, in effect, something like this, that Christianity gives you a big picture of reality in which God is proposed as a way of making sense of the enigmas of the world we see around us and, indeed, of our own experience. And here's a writer that I don't think many of you will know. Uh, He became dean of St. Paul's Cathedral um, and actually was quite influential in London society in the um, 40s and 50s. But this is from a book he wrote back in 1917 as a younger man, talking about um, rationalism and God. And in this quote, I think he gives you a sense of at least his understanding of how God acts as an explanatory foundation or explanatory framework for trying to make sense of the world. He writes, Rationalism tries to find a place for God in its picture of the world. But God can't be fitted into a diagram. Rather, he's a canvas on which the picture is painted or the frame on which it's set. And so for Inge, God is a canvas, a framework of explanation which can bear the intellectual weight of the world that surrounds us and the experiences within us. And interestingly, Inge here is not so much saying that our observations of the world prove there is a God. It's rather the other way around. He's saying if there is a God, then this actually makes sense of what we observe. And again, some of you will know this quote from John Henry Newman. Uh, it's a, from a letter to a friend of his, but it, it makes the point very, very succinctly. I believe in design, he writes, because I believe in God, not in God, because I see design. And actually, Newman's comment is quite wise because there is this issue of how you could see design. I think what you would see is certain things that seem to imply design. But I don't think design is really something you can actually observe itself. So, lots of interesting questions to discuss. And I've postponed engaging with C.S. Lewis, so it's time to begin to look at him. That's a very famous picture of Lewis. Many of you will recognize it. He's working at his home in Oxford. And if you look to the bottom left of the picture, you will notice a very large cup of tea, half empty, and also a box of matches, because when writing, Lewis would smoke a pipe and drink endless cups of tea. You'll also notice that that Lewis is using, um, in this case, I think it's a pencil. Lewis did not use a typewriter. Uh, He only used a pen, a fountain pen, for two reasons. One is because using a fountain pen forced him to write slowly, and thus actually allow his thoughts to really be fully developed as he wrote them. And secondly, he argued very interestingly that 
the clacking of a typewriter interfered with your sense of how words would sound. And really what you need to do as you wrote was to hear the words as you wrote them. But Lewis basically um, had no quarrel with natural sciences. Uh, he liked science, and of course, as a fellow of Malden College in Oxford, he knew lots of scientists, interestingly, including Peter Medua, who I mentioned earlier. I think there were really two issues which Lewis thought were interesting and important, and they both relate to this question I opened up right at the beginning of this lecture. One, of course, was whether human knowledge was limited to the, what the natural sciences could disclose. The other was the more developed question as to whether the sciences should be seen as the savior of the human race. Certainly as a teenager, Lewis basically held that science just gave us a complete picture of the world, and that was it. And actually, science was the only hope for the human race. Lewis's views changed a bit when he fought in the First World War and saw what science was being used for in the technology of warfare. But certainly, there's no doubt that as a younger man, Lewis took views which were basically very close to the idea of scientism I described earlier. Now, Lewis loved stories. I mean, as a child, he, he, he found these entrancing. And one of his favorite group of writers were what we would call science fiction writers, like Jules Verne. But H.G. Wells, of course, was particularly important. And Lewis found himself, as he, as he began to grow older, uh, he developed a Christian faith, he also began to become anxious about the way the world was going in the 1930s with the rise of fascism in Germany and things like that. And Lewis began to wonder if science actually was something that could be used to oppress people as well as to liberate them. And Lewis, I think, began to think questions which began to make him ask awkward questions about the kind of ideas he found in H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, to Lewis, seemed to propound a kind of scientific optimism, that as we master science, then in effect we master our world and are able to change that world, so in effect it's adapted to our own needs and agendas and concerns. And Lewis found that troubling. He found it troubling because it wasn't he objected to some of the benefits of technology. It was much more his growing belief that human nature was darker than he had once thought. And therefore, being able to use technology actually might lead to some very bad outcomes. And of course, the invention of the atom bomb kind of way confirmed Lewis's unease on this particular point. But basically, what Lewis began to realize was that H.G. Wells' scientific optimism, which he expressed in so many of his, um, his novels, um, needed, needed to be challenged. And one of the reasons why Lewis began to use fiction, initially uh, books like Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra, That Hideous Strength, uh, was to try and use the same literary genre as Wells, but set out different ideas. In other words, using science fiction, like Wells, but instead of developing this scientific optimism, developing what Lewis himself would call a form of realism. So Lewis basically um, was concerned about science. And this is a quote some of you may know. It's from, um, it's from a, an essay just written after the Second World War, Dreams of the Far Future Destiny of Man, were dragging up from its shallow and unquiet grave the old dream of man as God. And many of you will recognize there the kind of appeal to Prometheus, the, the, the guy who stole the fire from the gods in Greek mythology, and actually for many writers of the 18th century was a symbol of the, of the Enlightenment. In other words, Prometheus stole from the gods, enabling humans to do things which up to that point had been denied to them. And Lewis is just saying there are real concerns here about what is going on. So basically, we need, I think, to pause at this point and just be fair to Wells, because Lewis is critical of Wells, but actually Wells himself, as a result of the Second World War, began to entertain doubts 
about the way in which human beings were using science. And you, you may have come across Wells's book of 1945 called Mind at the End of Its Tether. Again, Mind at the End of Its Tether. If you haven't read it, it is very, very interesting. It's Wells looking back and beginning to wonder if actually he'd been just a little bit over-optimistic at one or two points, beginning to say maybe there is something wrong with us which actually we cannot really sort out. I think it's an important point because Lewis is making criticisms of Wells, which actually Wells in some way seems to have been alert to himself. In other words, internally, Wells was beginning to wonder whether science was quite as good as discovering things and quite as good as actually enabling humanity as he once had thought. And Lewis's concern is that the way that Wells' thinking is going is basically... uh, It's basically self-contradictory. If you take the view, which Lewis found in Wells, that human thought processes are simply the outcome of an arbitrary process, then how can you trust the thinking process that led you to that conclusion? And and here is uh, one of the points where he makes here. If thought is the undesigned and irrelevant product of cerebral motions, what reason have we to trust it? And that actually is, 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 is a thought that won't go away. We'll look at some better statements of that idea shortly, but certainly there is a real concern there. In his Mind at the End of Its Tether, again written in 1945, with the Second World War very much in his mind, uh, Wells basically um, began to began to enunciate the idea that science wasn't really good at dealing with fundamental problems of human nature or moral questions. In one section, Wells is reflecting on the horrors of the Second World War. And then he writes these words. Listen to these. The present writer has no compelling argument to convince the reader that he should not be cruel or mean, or cowardly. And Wells notes that these things are already, I quote, in his own makeup in a large measure, and therefore to act naturally is to follow those instincts. And really, Wells struggled to find a scientific basis for morality when science simply seemed to observe that human beings did things which we might think of as fundamentally selfish. And we talk about Richard Dawkins' selfish gene two lectures from now. We might be able to build on this very interesting point. So there are some points here that I think are really interesting. Again, coming back to Lewis's point here. Lewis basically is critiquing what he calls naturalism. Now, I need to just say to you that naturalism is one of those words that does mean different things to different people. And Lewis here is using this word naturalism to mean something like a way of thinking about who we are as people and our distinct capacities and processes, which is basically simply the outcome of a natural process which did not have their emergence in its gun sites. In other words, these things were just undesigned and therefore we we have to ask questions about how reliable they are. And Lewis basically is echoing a thought you find in many previous writers like G.K. Chesterton. Uh, This is a classic example of um, a critique of a thought which Chesterton links with materialism but actually you and I would probably now link this more with certain postmodern ways of thinking. The man who represents all thought as an accident of environment is simply smashing and discrediting all his own thoughts, including that one. And Lewis had read that and actually found that quite significant. But here is a similar concern in the writings of J.B.S. Haldane. Haldane, in my view, one of the most interesting scientific writers of the 20th century, a Marxist who was also a scientist, and very self-critical points. And this is one of those points of reflection where again he's saying, look, I'm a materialist. You know, We are simply an aggregate of atoms and molecules. And then begins to reflect where that thought might take him. 
if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. They may be sound chemically, but that doesn't make them sound logically. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. Now, there are replies you can give to Haldane. Um, the reply that is most often given, and which actually, in my view, is, is perhaps the most plausible, if you want to eliminate every metaphysical um, aspect of this, is simply to say, well, it may be difficult to justify this, but it does seem to work. And therefore, you know, it's it, it success is actually a useful way of judging whether it is true or not. But nevertheless, Haldane saw there being a problem there. So let's begin to move on and ask where this takes us. Again, we'll stick with C.S. Lewis for a little bit, then I'll move on and look at some others. Lewis basically worries that materialism, what he calls naturalism, gives an account of human nature which defines us on the basis of our physical components. In other words, we are thinking machines or something like that. And the question, therefore, is on what basis can we, can we trust the reliability of those thoughts processes? And in his 1943 work, The Abolition of Man, Lewis begins to look at these questions in more detail. It's a short book. It's a difficult book. Those of you who've tried to read it will probably see you take a long time to do it. It's not one of Lewis's best-selling books at all. But in it, Lewis is saying that we've got to try and avoid saying that we simply construct within us or invent ideas around, about the world around us. There is something in the world that we are responding to. Now, most scientists would say, well, we, we can go along with that, but Lewis extends it beyond science. Here is a, a, a quote from Lewis about aesthetic judgment. And again, this is something where I think the audience here will be divided, but it's a very interesting point. Um, someone says, looking at the waterfall, saying, this is sublime. What's he saying? Is he saying that waterfall has certain qualities which make it sublime? Or is it simply, this is the way I feel about it? And therefore, when I say this is sublime, I mean it is evoking subjective sublime feelings within me. It's a statement about me, not a statement about the waterfall. And, I mean, we all have views on this one. Lewis, I think, was very concerned that this seemed to, in effect, make us the judge of all things, and thus to be inattentive to the world around us. Uh, Lewis suggests, for example, that until quite recently, people believed, I quote, that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval or disapproval. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about Lewis. Lewis is very interesting here. Because one of the points that Lewis is exploring is this question about were things like aesthetic judgments, moral judgments, actually come from? And Lewis's argument is that science may contribute to our reflections, but it's not a basis for them in the first place. So what I'm going to do is then use this as a way of transitioning into an argument, a discussion, which many of you be familiar with. Is reality limited to what science can uncover? Let's look at the whole area of morality, which is a classic example of the kind of debates that this opens up. So we're going to look at um, Charles Darwin's Descent of Man uh, very famous book, published in 1871. Lewis published the Origin of Species, sorry, Darwin published the Origin of Species in 1859 and felt he needed to wait a judicious amount of time before publishing The Descent of Man, because although it is implicit in the Origin of Species that human beings also evolve, um, Darwin didn't want to focus on that in its totality and waited till 1871 to look at the evolution of humanity. And Darwin's argument in that book is complex, but one of the points he makes is that, in his view, human beings are biologically inclined to be sympathetic, altruistic, and moral, in that this proved to be an advantage 
in the struggle for existence. And many of you will know that Herbert Spencer developed Darwin's ideas into what we very often now describe as social Darwinism. He takes biological facts, like the struggle for existence and natural selection, and changes these into prescriptions for human moral conduct. This is the way the natural process of evolution works. Therefore, we should emulate this in our own moral thinking. And thus, uh, Spencer suggested that since life is a struggle, it follows that for the best in humanity to survive, um, we need to sideline or eliminate the weak. Uh, This is um, Spencer. To aid the bad in multiplying is, in effect, the same as maliciously providing for our descendants a multitude of enemies. That's Spencer, not Darwin. Uh, And I, I, I find myself disturbed by what Spencer is saying. But, you know, it is a very significant element in contemporary thinking, and many of you will know that even in American and British and German progressive circles in the late 1910s and early 1920s, there was this pressure to, in effect, say, look, now that we understand how human beings evolve, we can take charge of this process, and one of the ways of doing this is by stopping certain categories of people from reproducing because they will cause problems for the human race further down the line. And it is a a very, very disturbing line of thought, and I'll explore it with you in a little bit more. But writers like E.O. Wilson, for example, in his book of Sociobiology in 1975, basically argued that morality really was grounded in biology. And he argued that the way to understand how we should behave as, uh, as animals, in effect, was to cut the philosophy and look at the biology. Uh, for example, here's a quote from Wilson's Sociobiology. Scientists and humanists should consider together the possibility that a time has come for ethics to be removed temporarily from the hands of a philosopher and biologicized. That's his word. Now, there are problems here. I'm going to begin to illustrate these by looking at Thomas Huxley, Darwin's great interpreter in the late 19th century. I'm going to look at a lecture of his from 1893 called Evolution and Ethics. You can get this online if you want to read it. It's a very, very interesting, almost prophetic lecture, very well written, raising some very good questions. Huxley asks, why have we as human beings risen to the top? Why are we so, you know, so successful? And he argues that we have triumphed in the struggle for existence through, listen to this, our ruthless and ferocious destructiveness, which enabled us to survive and ultimately to dominate the biological realm. But once human beings have dominated things, he argues, having subdued the remainder of the biological world, they discover that, I quote, these deeply ingrained serviceable qualities have become defects. In other words, the, the instincts that brought us to the top of the tree, if I put it very crudely, don't work as the basis for social context, for our, our societies. And so basically, ethics for Huxley is a principled resistance to precisely those animal qualities that secured human domination of the living world in the first place. And so uh, he writes these words, and again, these are very interesting to me. The practice of that which is ethically best, what we call goodness or virtue, involves a course of conduct which in all respects is opposed to that which leads to success in the cosmic struggle for existence. So here is Huxley um, summarizing his argument. Very interesting. Evolution may teach us how the good and the evil tendencies of man may have come about, but in itself it is incompetent to furnish any better reason why what we call good is preferable to what we call evil than we had before. 
In other words, Huxley is trying to make the point that natural processes, including the evolutionary process, do not help us figure out what is right and what is wrong, and that what is natural may not be what is good. And so there are some very deep questions there. We look at the surface of nature, we observe certain things. Do we go deeper then and say there is something beneath the surface that we need to uh, discover and apply to ourselves, in this case, and what is good, what is evil, or do we limit ourselves to what we can actually observe? Now, I think the question here really is, can science help us develop moral values? My own view, for what's worth, is that I think science can help us inform our moral discussions. But I'm not sure if it can determine them. In other words, science, I think, gives us lots of ideas which can help us think this thing through but it doesn't actually tell us what's right and what's wrong. And some of you will have read a book by Sam Harris called The Moral Landscape, in which he tries to develop the idea that science is able to give us objective moral values. It's a very attractive idea because for many people, including myself at times, you know, ethics seems to be free-floating. It'd be great if there was something definitive that's normative for all of us, which enables us to say, this is right, this is wrong. Harris's argument is that science can do it. The subtitle of that book, The Moral Landscape, is very interesting. Here it is, how science can determine human values. And so I think there are some real interesting points in this book, and I think that um, it, it, is, it is worth reading. But at the end of it, you are left wondering whether, in effect, what Harris is really doing is bringing to the discussion his own set of moral values and finding those reflected in what he sees in science. In other words, that, that there's an, a sort of smuggling in of moral values which are somehow endorsed by the application of science. And that would be, I think, my, my concern about that, though obviously there is more that needs to be said. As C.S. Lewis himself pointed out, there's a tendency for scientists to absorb the, the moral values of their context, for example, their own peer group, and then to perhaps retroject those values onto the scientific enterprise itself. In other words, that moral or social values that really have cultural, not scientific, origins kind of way find their way into science by a process of osmosis and are assumed to have some kind of scientific warrant. Now, all scientists find themselves troubled by this, and Charles Darwin is no exception. I'm going to show you a passage from The Descent of Man, which is not very often cited these days, and I think you'll see why. This is um, Darwin reflecting on why certain groups of human beings are more successful than others. The Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races through the world. Now let me defend Darwin before I express concern. He is not commending the extermination of what he terms savage human races by more civilized races. He's simply expressing the wider cultural judgment of his day that this process would take place and that Western culture then stood at the apex of what uh, was seen as this civilizing process. But I think you will all know that some saw this thought as a motivation for what we now call colonialism. So, you know, there's a cause for concern there. And, I mean, Darwin's, Darwin's own language, this is a passage not, not very far away from that one, is basically that there's a struggle for existence going on and that, um, that we are caught up in this struggle and we just have to realize that, that if we are to plan for our own future, we have to try and deal with these issues. So what I want to say here is that there's some really interesting questions that all of this opens up. The main one I've been exploring with you is this. Let's go back to that 
rather nice picture which I opened the lecture of the water lilies. Are things like the meaning of life, what is good, what is bad, things that we can read off from looking at our world around us. In other words, like the lilies and li- lily leaves and lily flowers on the surface of the pond. Or do we need to go deeper beneath the surface to try and understand what they are? And that image, I think, is quite helpful. It raises, first of all, the, the, the philosophical question of whether reality is limited to what we can observe. And I talked about that in the first half of this lecture. And one of the points I was trying to make is that we must never limit reality what we as human beings can observe, precisely because of the limits on our observation. We are limited by our eyes, by our ears, so many things, and there is a bigger universe out there that perhaps technology enables us to appreciate more than our natural human capacities. But I wanted to take this further and begin to ask whether science is able to help us with some of these deeper questions about meaning, about values, because there I think we are going deeper than simply what we can read off the natural world around us. So in many ways what I'm trying to say is it seems to me that science is wonderful in so many words. Help us to understand this world. It may help us to master it. But using that language of mastery is really very, very dangerous in some ways. Because if you master something, then what are you going to do with it? What ethical principles would govern what, in effect, you are doing? So in many ways, what I've done in the final moments of this lecture is transition to the topic of the next lecture. What I'm looking at there is this whole question of technology. And the issue I'll be looking at next week, focusing on J.R.R. Tolkien, is whether technology, in effect, is something that improves our world or something that, in effect, makes us prone to some of the deeper flaws of human nature. And one of the points I'll be making is that technology enables us to do things that our pregenitors could only aspire to. And some of those things may well be very, very good, and some of them may not be. Why am I bringing J.R. Tolkien into this? Well, Tolkien, as you probably know, served in the Lancashire Fusiliers during the Great War and, in effect, began to reflect on the fact that technology was delivering an impersonal destruction in the trenches of the First World War and wondering, first of all, what that's meant for the future of Western civilization, but also what it meant for his understanding of human nature itself. So in our next lecture, we'll begin to move into that territory using Tolkien as an example, but there are many other dialogue partners that we'll bring into that discussion. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.